Okay, folks, we're back to our study of Song of Solomon. Song of Songs, uh, lesson four of what will likely be, I think, seven total. So we'll, um, I'll be out next, uh, next Sunday uh, out, of, out of town for a Thanksgiving break. Um, but then when I get back, we'll have, uh, we'll have three Sundays, basically, before we get to Christmas Day, which this year falls on, uh, on a Sunday morning. And so we will not have Bible study uh, that morning. We'll have a worship service only at 11 o'clock, um, and then a different schedule even the next Sunday, which is uh, New Year's Day. And then we'll come back, um, I guess that's January 8th, and um, uh, be probably looking at getting into... Uh, into a new series. So this is a Song of Songs. It is, is Solomon's, we said it's a Solomon's greatest hit, if you want to think of it that way. He wrote many, many songs, over a thousand songs. Uh, it's a song that celebrates the marital joy experienced by man and woman, husband and wife. Uh, and we've said a song that demonstrates God's intention for the romance and the unity and the passion of marriage. And just to remind you of my goal, my, my sort of objectives for, for this series, my, my real goal is just that you would you'd love your spouse more, love your spouse, love your spouse more, you'd love the Bible more, just realizing that how clear the Bible is about all of these issues. I mean, it's, I, I tell people sometimes the Bible, you could put on the, on the, you know, on the spine of your Bible what God has to say about blank, right? I mean, it's... It, it covers everything. I mean, everything that we're dealing with in our daily lives, the scriptures have so much to say about it. And so even as we go through this study, I just hope that your, your love for God's word just goes up as a consequence of this, as well as your love for the, for the Lord. I, I pray that you would, you would love the Lord uh, more, that, that as you are discussing your marriage, which I hope that's kind of been the, the take home, is that you're coming to Bible study and you're hearing these things and you're going home, and if you're married, you're talking to your spouse, uh, discussing your, your marriage and working to make it better, you know, doing some problem solving, making adjustments, um, but that you would realize at the end of the day that none of this would be possible if it weren't for Christ, right? Um, so I want you to celebrate joyful moments together as a couple, enjoy one another's company, realize your marriage is a gift from God. To be thankful uh, for your spouse and the, thankful for the gift of sexuality, and we might even say this: to see all of your life as worship, including your marriage. Okay, so everything we do, folks, every waking minute of our day is about it's about worship. Okay, uh, in fact, I would commend to you uh, a talk that was given by Paul Tripp uh, a number of years ago. We were up in uh, Indiana at a, uh, a counseling conference there, and he spoke, uh, the, the, the title of his talk was called uh, Worship and Marital Unity. Uh, and I use it a lot in, you know, give it to couples. We use it in, in, um, in, our, in our counseling ministry here. But um, if you are interested in that, uh, you can, I don't know if it's out there somewhere. It could be out there on the web. I have that. So if, you, if you're interested in listening to that, uh, feel free to shoot me an email and I can just send, send you a link uh, back uh, to that and make that accessible to you. Uh, so far, we've made several observations concerning the Song of Songs and marriage. We've stated the obvious fact that uh, marriage is awesome. Uh, we've admitted that it's hard work and it is painful at times. Uh, but this song itself is a beautiful statement about marriage and sexuality. 
Uh, we also said that marriage is a unique relationship, uh, that there's nothing quite like it on this planet, and we'll talk a little bit more the next time about that. Um, we added to that, that that marriage should be celebrated by others, not just by the couple themselves. Uh, the, the fact that others should come alongside and affirm the significance of marriage and the worthiness of a man or or a woman who are committing themselves to one another in marriage. Uh, we mentioned that marriage is a refuge from insecurity um, and the wonderful reality that marriage can actually be a refuge from the latent insecurities that reside in the heart of a husband uh, or a wife. And along with that, we pointed out how important it is for marriage to be a place of, of affirmation. And uh, we're, gonna, we're actually going to spend most of our time today coming back to that point. Uh, Our sixth observation was the truth that marriage is powerful because of its exclusivity. Uh, We looked, we went over to Proverbs 5, Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, uh, and looked at how unfaithfulness in marriage is is a costly waste of of precious energy. Uh, And and in Proverbs 6, very, very clear uh, description there that teaches us uh, how unfaithfulness leads to destructive jealousies. Uh, We noted how marriage involves strong and deep emotions. And finally, how marital love overcomes obstacles and challenges. Uh, Without question, marriage has obstacles, right? There there are challenges, but you have to keep reminding yourself in marriage that no matter what those obstacles are, marriage was God's idea, and there's nothing that you face that you don't have sufficient grace to face together. Uh, Then last Sunday, we had Dave Hill came in. Um, uh, He subbed in for me with all that we had going on with our men's conference, and I know that many of you were were blessed by his uh, testimony and his example of of, uh, faithfulness and love for his wife, Judy, and as well as Judy's uh, faithfulness and love for him. Uh, But this morning, I want to return to this issue and importance of affirmation, uh, which we touched on briefly a few weeks ago. Uh, The Bible has all kinds of things to say about communication, okay? And we've done this when we were going through our study in Ecclesiastes for a number of months before we started into this series, uh, Song of Songs. Uh, There were many times during that study in Ecclesiastes that we jumped over to Proverbs, and, and we saw a lot of connections between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, which makes sense because they have the same Uh, the same author, for the most part, with the Proverbs. Uh, But we see that same sort of connection here. Uh, A lot of the themes that are dealt with in the book of Song Song of Solomon, also we see some some ties to the book of Proverbs. And the Proverbs do clearly have a lot to say. We sort of see, I guess, in Song of Solomon, an, an example of communication. And then, of course, the Proverbs do what for us? They sort of boil down in very concise statements, you know, things that we need to aspire to and things we need to avoid, uh, dangers and threats and those sorts of things. Uh, But Proverbs specifically has a lot to say about this area of of speech, our words, our communication. If you want to just jot down uh, several of these references, Proverbs uh, 12, 18 says, There is one who speaks rashly, like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Uh, pretty vivid description, right? That that our words can be like thrusts of a sword. <laughs> um, 
some of you would admit that there are things, if you were to think back, there are probably things that have been said to you um, that you would describe in that way. And if you, I mean, I've actually witnessed this. There are, there are, there are times when people are describing things that were said to them sometimes years ago, and it brings them to tears. Okay, literally talking about these these things, and some of you would would agree with the power of of our words. Um, my wife and I had a conversation last night. She is uh, was uh, going to be in prac- uh, wor- warming up with the um, the worship team this morning in this class, so we were just talking about what the topic for today was, and it was good. I, again, I hope you guys are doing this. I hope you're talking about these things. But she gave me uh, three examples in our history um, about times when, um, you know, I don't know about any of you guys, but, I mean, occasionally I go into problem-solving mode as a husband, you know, where your, your wife, she tells you something, and I don't think that she really is necessarily presenting it this way, but, but husbands tend to receive it as you're giving me this information, you're presenting to me a problem. And what you want from me is you want me to solve the problem. Okay, so my wife recently, this week, earlier this week, gave me two pieces of information, and I put those two things together and said, well, she, she has a problem. i got to fix the problem. And so I went into that mode, and so I start solving that, and then I start communicating that solution back to her, and I'm getting resistance. Okay, <laughs> that that's not really what she wants, but I just keep going. I mean, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty persistent. And so I'm thinking, you know, she wouldn't have brought this to my attention if she really didn't need the help. And so, I, you know, she may tell me, because this is the trick. See, guys, right, she said that, but does she, does she want me to just quit? Maybe she's just saying that, but she really wants me to persist. <laughs> so, well, I took it as, Joel, you got to keep pushing on this. And so I kept pushing. Well, that didn't go well. Okay, so then last night we had this conversation, and she mentioned a couple of other times in our marriage where she gave me some information, and I went into that same mode. And at one point, brought her to tears at one of those occasions. Just, just the forcefulness of me trying to suggest this is what you need to do. I mean, you've got to do this, right? So uh, that's just the reality, folks. I mean, it, our words and, and what I guess the reason I even bring that up is because <laughs> she did not have to think very long to give me those three examples. You know, I mean, it, it was just like, in fact, I told her, I said, I'm amazed that you're speaking about these examples with the same, to me anyway, it came across as with the same level of emotion as if these things had happened on Thursday, right? But that's the power of words. And, and there are words that, that you have said and that I have said that we wish we could take back, Right? Proverbs 13.3, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15.4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. 16.24, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. 1821, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. 2123, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. 2920, 
Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. So what you need to know is that romance, intimacy, sexuality, and affirmation all merge together in marriage. Right? We, we crave affirmation. We, we, we crave encouragement. And, and, and what I want to do this morning is, is I want to point out a couple of texts in, song, in the Song of Solomon that I think highlight the, the importance of or the beauty of af- affirmation and to challenge you to think of ways to affirm your spouse. So I, I want you to think about, no, no matter if you've been married a few months or 50 plus years, what are the ways in which you can affirm and celebrate and highlight the things that you love about each other? And I could say it this way. I want you to consider the idea that the power of no is in a stronger yes. The power of no is in a stronger yes. Uh, we get overly fixated on the no. Right, our our no is is the first step. I mean, our our kids, our kids come to talk to us about sexuality. It's it's no, no. It's like our immediate reaction. Sometimes we focus on the no, even 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 in regular decision making with with our kids. And I heard John MacArthur say this years ago. He was asked about his kids, especially in those in those teen years, and one of the pieces of counsel that he that he gave there was say say yes as often as you can <laughs> and reserve the no for the really big items right don't don't no 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 all the time reserve those things and and use yes more often and so what we would try to do is if our kids were making a decision we would say so um, do you want to do this this or this and give them three options that we were all comfortable. I mean, I was comfortable with any of the three. <laughs> so there were times where they, you know, they would go, well, I'd rather do this. Or say, well, do you want to do this or that? And I'd say, well, I would, I'd do that. And say, well, that's great. That's, and, and, and sort of allowing them to make the decision, but you've narrowed the choices down so that it's, it's a yes, right? I mean, if they pick any one of those things, it's, it's, a, it's a, in a sense, it's affirmation, right? So, uh, no is okay, right? But we, but we we want to go on to help people understand the beauty of yes, and and what I would say is that in the Song of Songs, there are all kinds of no in this book, but it comes through as a really big yes. Okay. Uh, remember the, uh, what we considered a couple weeks ago. We were talking about proverbs, right? You remember these two phrases: flee the. Remember this. Proverbs 6, flee the what? The fire. Remember this? Can a man take fire into his bosom and not be scorched or burned, right? So there's, there, these are the two sort of things going side by side in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. There's the negative side, flee the fire. But then on the positive side, remember what it was? Drink the, drink the water, right? Because in Proverbs 5, after this warning about the strange woman... He goes on and he says that you're to be enjoying your wife, right? You're, you're, you're to be drinking of the water, this fresh, clean water that God has, has provided. Ch- Chalmers, uh, old uh, Puritan, referred to it as the expulsive power of a new affection. Or you might say, or another affection. In other words, when you love something, 
more than something else, then that thing that you love more pushes the other thing out. There's an expulsive power there. And so what Proverbs is basically saying is if all you're doing is fleeing the fire, you're not going to win that battle. It's going to take more than that. It's going to take more than you just saying, no, 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 right? Do you need those guardrails? Do you need those fences? Absolutely, right? You take those threats seriously, but along with fleeing the fire, you have to see the beauty of what God has given you, right? And you have to enjoy that, and you have to be a good steward of that. So it's that idea of why would you want this when you could have that? Right? Why would you want this thing that the world is offering? Why would you want this thing that you selfishly want when you could have that thing there that is so much better that God has given to you? In fact, some of you have probably heard the quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, quote, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's the problem, right? Is that we're offered things sometimes that are less, right? They're less valuable than what God has given us, but we're too easily pleased. We're too, we too easily go after those things rather than focusing on the thing that God has given that is best for us. So what are the ways that you could take a step further in affirming your spouse in a way that reaches to the heart where he or she would say more of that, right? Where your spouse does something to you, your spouse, your spouse says something to you, and in your mind you're thinking, more of that, please? You know what I'm talking? It's, it's like, that, that's great, more? You know, it's like, Jeff, it was like ice cream, right? It's like Grater's ice cream. We were up in, on our trip, you know. Jeff's like, you know, what was it, blueberry pie? Grater's blueberry pie ice cream. More of that, please, right? <laughs> so it's like, how could we affirm our spouse in such a way that, when, that they would say when we're doing those things, more of that, please? At the same time, realizing that there is a part of your soul that no affirmation is going to be able to fully satisfy, Right? Because for some people, affirmation isn't a desire, it's an idol, right? You got married. I mean, I, I counsel with these, these types of people. They got married because they wanted someone to make them feel whole or complete. And the reality is nobody can do that, right? Only, that's something that only Jesus can do, okay? So when it comes to marriage, it's not two halves make a whole, right? It's, it's, it's you, you need two whole people coming together. In marriage. So, so wives, your husband cannot take the place of Christ's role in your life. And husbands, your wife cannot meet all of those desires and, and needs, the, the ones that Jesus himself was meant to meet. So affirmation is a context for marriage, but it's not the ultimate satisfier in marriage. Uh, you can't put that kind of pressure on, on your spouse. You can't say, you've got to affirm me because I feel insecure. Okay, the reality is, you're going to feel insecure, and that kind of affirmation is going to help, but it won't ultimately solve the reality of the challenge that is within your heart. Okay, so you see this sometimes. Uh, I think Betty Ann and I were talking about this uh, a book that I was given before Kelly and I got married. Um, 
uh, His Needs, Her Needs was the name of it. Um, and, and, and so, you know, the, the idea is that husbands have, I think there's five needs and, and, and the wife has five needs. And the subtitle of the book is How to Affair-Proof Your Marriage. And so the, the, the concept is guys have these insecurities, if you want to call them. They have these things that they, not desires, right, not wants, but needs. Okay, that's the distinction. They have these needs. These women have these needs. But if a husband can fully meet those five needs, he can essentially prevent unfaithfulness in his marriage. In other words, he can, basically he can lock this down. He can guarantee that his wife will never commit adultery if he meets those five needs. And if the wife meets these five needs that her husband has, then she can be, have that guarantee as well. And so the problem with that, of course, is people, <laughs> two things happen. Uh, one is you, you put a, I mean, that's a lot of pressure. You know, it's like, so in order to prevent this from happening, I have to do that. I have to satisfy this person in these ways. That's really the only way to guarantee that. And so it becomes, I think the, the focus gets shifted onto that. The other thing is sometimes people turn this thing around, right, and misuse it in the sense that they say, I have these five needs, right? And so if we're having problems, it's probably because you're not, you're only hitting three of them. I mean, I got two more that are, un, are not being met, right? And so it just becomes an a, a extremely self-focused, self-centered way of thinking. And it, to me, it takes the attention off of Christ. <laughs> Christ is the one who meets your needs. And your spouse should want to meet, fulfill your desires, but they're not Jesus, right? And so we have to keep those things separate and think of them in that way. Now, in chapter 1, we were introduced to this woman, the, Sh- the Shunammite and this man, Solomon, and their affections for one another. Chapter 2, we saw their mutual admiration and increased longing for, for each other. We pick up today with chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, this is the beginning, and we're going to come, this is the part we're going to come back to, the, the, the wedding itself. But this is the beginning of the wedding procession. Uh, the king actually comes for his bride and their return to Jerusalem, where they will be married, will consummate their union. Um, now, some translate, translations here, beginning in verse 6, and I mentioned this early on about the headings. Your translation probably has something to try to help you to figure out who's talking throughout this thing. And then there's some debate about uh, s- some of them are pretty clear as far as who's speaking, and some of them are more questionable. Um, there are some translations that have the Shunammite speaking here, but it may be better understood as coming from, I put the DOJ, I guess not the Department of Justice. That is the daughters of Jerusalem. Okay, right? So here we go. Chapter 3, verse 6. What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. So the idea is that Solomon and his bridal party are making their way to the wedding. Okay, 60 mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a, 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 a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of, Jeru- of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. So this is the setting of this scene. 
You've got this procession coming coming to the wedding. Solomon and all of his group and, 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 and all of his, his glory. This woman is beholding him coming. And then in chapter 4, Solomon praises the beauty of his bride. Okay, so we're going to look at a couple of things. We're going to look at how he praises her and then how she praises him. And then we're going to sort of tie that to this concept of affirmation uh, that is so important in, in the marriage relationship. So there's really just two points for, the, for today, okay? Two, just two points. The first one is this, husbands affirm your wives. Husbands affirm your wives. Notice the descriptions here of Solomon in terms of what he is saying regarding his wife-to-be. Uh, now, there's some, some discussion about whether these things happen in public. Um, uh, that is to say, if Solomon is looking at her on the wedding day and saying these things, sort of for others to hear or whether these things are private. It's, it's likely that he speaks of in the first seven verses in public and the far more intimate words of verses 8 down to verse 15 in private as they prepare to, uh, to come together physically, which will take place in verse 16 and chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, regardless, what is happening here is Solomon is going to praise this woman and he's going to take his time. Okay? He's going to praise every aspect that he sees about her. And in this particular text, he is going to move from head to toe. Okay? Then another text, he's going to move from toe to head. But notice all these descriptions. Okay? He begins by saying, Behold. Okay? Now, if you've got a New American Standard, it's not there. Okay? You don't see it there. Um, but it is in the ESV, and it is in other translations, and it is in the Hebrew text. Okay, so it's an interjection. It's basically, lo, behold. It's, it's, it's like a proclamation. Okay, it's, or you can say, it's like, it's like, wow. Okay? <laughs> in fact, the term is used two times in verse 1. Okay? So, and again, you won't hear that in this, because I'm reading from the New American Standard, but verse 1. How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. So, again, a lot of symbolism, okay? You look off in the distance, early morning, you see these black goats, okay, who are just sort of frolicking down the mountains, streaming down in a herd. That's, that's sort of the image that's being described here. So there's just, it's, it's basically Solomon saying there's just something beautiful about the way that your hair is set. Just the, the way you have arranged your hair. Verse 2, your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one of them has lost her young. You talk about some heavy imagery, right? <laughs> We're talking about teeth here, okay? <laughs> your teeth are white and they are evenly matched. Okay. <laughs> Uh, basically, your teeth are beautiful. They're white, and you have all of them. Okay. Isn't that great? <laughs> that's what I mean by take your time. You get it? Yeah, you see what I'm saying? I mean, that's a lot of thought going into some teeth. Okay. Verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Basically, your lips are red. Your temples, some versions say cheeks. It's literally the side of your face. The side of your face, your cheeks are rosy with, with, with robust health. Verse 4, your neck is like the Tower of David. 
built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men, which was, a, which was, was customary for soldiers to hang their shields on the towers belonging to the, Lord, the lords to whom they pledged allegiance. Okay, so he's just, just grabbing. Just think of it this way. It's not so much about us understanding every little facet of the symbolism as it is about the sheer quantity of the symbolism. Okay, the fact that this guy is grabbing cultural things, agricultural things, military things, you know, it's, it's like, <laughs> you know, honey, you're like a... 57 Chevy. You know, it's like, it's, it's like, it's like this guy is, it's in his world. You know what I'm saying? It's like he's taking something from his world that he loves and admires, but he's applying it to her. And you think, well, that's not, I mean, that's not, is it that romantic? Well, it is, it is if she understands the significance of the thing that he's comparing her to, right? That's what this whole thing is about. So the Tower of David was something that was dignified. So she's not only beautiful, it's as if he's saying, She's the whole package, right? Because a tower of David is a tower par excellence, right? She's a dignified woman, and she enjoyed the popular acceptance by Solomon's subjects. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. Essentially, they're elegant, and there's a sense of desire to be closer to them. Verse 6, until the cool of the day when the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense, okay? All you need to know about that is that we're not talking about backpacking and, mi- and mountain climbing. Amen? Okay, I, I, that's my point, is we don't necessarily have to dive into all that. What we need to know is that that's, it's obviously not literally, uh, we're not taking these things in that sense, okay? Verse 7, you were all together beautiful. My darling, and there is no blemish in you. Now the question is, are, are there blemishes? Yep, there are blemishes. But not in his estimation, right? So here's the question. How many wives want to hear that from their husbands? You are altogether beautiful and there is no blemish in you. How many wives want to keep hearing that even after the babies come? How many wives want to keep hearing that as the years go by and the gray hairs start showing up, right? So this is a, I'm just going to tell you, men, this is a great verse to underline. If you you like to mark things in your Bible, that's a good one, okay? Great verse to underline because it really captures the essence of, of what Solomon is saying and speaking to this woman. This affirmation for wives is really important. How many of you have seen that show? It's um, Waco. I think it's in Waco, Texas. Um, The husband and the wife. Oh, Fixer Upper. Fixer up. How many of you have seen Fixer Upper? Come on, don't be embarrassed. Yeah, you got cable. You watch it. Come on. It's a cable. Fix her upper. Okay, what would you, would you say, Mark? I watch it with her. Oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> she turns it on, I see it. Yeah, that's all you do, I'm sure, Mark. <laughs> I don't watch it alone. <laughs> no. <laughs> so if you're familiar with this show, right, who are the two characters? Chip and Joanne, right? And the storyline is this. Joanne's got a great idea. Chip's going to figure it out. 
Joanne is going to find some fun things, and Chip is going to be goofy. That's the, that, if you get that, I mean, that, you, you, you've gotten the show, okay? <laughs> About every third or fourth show, Chip, if you watch, watched more than one episode, <laughs> like Mark, you know, if, you, if you watch it every week, <clears throat> Chip will take his shirt off. Okay, have you seen this? He will take his shirt off or, or, or something like that, and he'll say, check this out. All right? Okay. <laughs> and she will say to him, put your dad bod away. Okay, now. So, essentially, she, <laughs> she, she will mock the guy. Okay? She'll mock his, his body. It's funny. The, the, thankfully, the guy's got a great personality, but he is not the most fit guy in the world. Okay? But here's the thing. They would never think of doing that with Joe. Right? If he said to her, you think about it, you're watching this show, this show, and if he said to her, you've got such a mom body, you would recoil. I, I mean, you would, you would say, turn that off. Right? I mean, that's terrible. I mean, I can't believe that that guy just said that to his wife. That's horrible. But it's okay with him, right? It's okay for her to poke at him, but it's not okay for him to do that with her in that way. And I think that's for a really, really important reason. And it has something to do with this latent insecurity that this song addresses and that most wives understandably feel. That is why pornography is so emotionally devastating to a woman. Because it's an impossible standard for her to meet. It's impossible. But she knows it's there. Right? She's very aware that it's there. And when men go there, it just pours gasoline on that insecurity. Just pours gasoline on it. So the typical wife wants to know that her husband thinks that she is beautiful and that he only has eyes for her, and even if a woman knows in her head that her husband finds her beautiful, she still wants to hear it and hear it often. So, so now you know why Solomon praises her, right? And, and he goes on, right? And he goes slowly, and he goes carefully, and he goes methodically. And he even uses language that may sound to us a little ridiculous, Right? But I bet that in the back of her mind, she's thinking, that's crazy. A flock of goats? Could you find another one, please? You know, you know it's, it's that, that sounds kind of crazy. 57 Chevy? Yeah, more, please. You know what I'm saying? It's, even though to us it sounds that way, I, I can guarantee you that from her perspective, it's, it's more. More ice, more, greater's ice cream. More, please. More, please. I like that. Okay, so let me just give you some quick application for the men. Say it, okay, affirmation. Say it, say it out loud, say it with descriptive words, say it ten times more than you think is necessary. Say it sincerely. Say it without the expectation that your wife will respond by fulfilling your desires, right? If your wife thinks that you're just saying those things in order to get something kind of strips it of its meaning, right? Uh, 
Say it sincerely. Say it quickly. Your wife gets a new hairstyle. Your wife gets a new outfit and you don't notice. You need to notice. And and, and there's a window, guys. Okay, so if your wife gets a new hairdo and you wait five days to say, did you do something, you know... So there's a window here where guys got to be, they've got to affirm things and they've got to do it quickly. So I'm just saying, guys, you've got to, you got, and I'm, I'm not, when I say guys, I'm, okay, this is for me too. You've got to raise your awareness level of these kinds of things. And I would say to the wives, it's okay for you to help your husband. Okay, we need help. Okay, so it's okay for you to say, hey, I'm going to get my hair cut today. Hint, hint, yes, (laughs) help, please, okay? It's okay for you to say things like that and kind of give your husband a cue, okay? And if, guys, if you don't pick up on it, there's nothing I can do to help you, okay? Have a conversation about this and help your husband to know what he says that is helpful, okay? Most, I'm going to say all husbands, but most husbands don't want to say stupid things, they say stupid things, okay? <laughs> Most husbands don't want to do that, okay? And so help your husbands, okay? And men, don't expect your words of affirmation to solve everything. So don't think that if you one time this week go, yeah, I've been thinking about that affirmation thing, and you, and you say something that's really kind of almost out of place because you don't normally say it. That's great, but guys are about doing it one time or two times and then saying, well, I mean, it didn't work. I mean, she still seems to be dealing with this insecurity thing regarding her, her beauty, her looks. I, I've said two comments in the last week. I mean, I don't know, what's the problem? Okay, make the deposit, make another one, make another one, make another one. Don't think, well, I give her compliments, but it never solves the issue. You're not there to solve the issue. You're there to walk with her through the issue. Okay, so this thing, my wife, this exchange my wife and I had where I was getting two pieces of information and I go into problem solving mode, that is not, well, that was not helpful. Okay, I thought I was being helpful, but I wasn't. But guess what? I didn't know that till last night. And guess when that came out? In a conversation where we actually, so what, obviously something's not <laughs> right here. What what I do? You know, it's like, I, I know I'm, I've said something foolish. I've done something to help me here. And I'm saying you've got to be able to talk about these things, honestly. So husbands, I'm saying wives help your husbands. Husbands, go to your wives and say, what is helpful? Right? What, do you, what do I do? What could I say that you would say, more please? Okay? And say it with actions. Right? Say it with actions. So all of these serve the framework of what it means to affirm. Husbands, affirm your wives. Point number two, wives... Affirm your husbands. Now look over at chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 5, verse 10, she praises him, but notice the difference. Okay, verse 10. My beloved is dazzling and ruddy. Whoa. Outstanding among 10,000. Okay, modern vernacular, he's a stud. Okay? He is a stud, verse 11. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. The light glistens off of your 
four hit, well, not everybody, but there are some, yeah, you're thinking hair, all that stuff. Some of you, that was long gone, okay? So it would be a different kind of comment. The, the light glistens off your forehead or something like that. His eyes, verse 12, are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. And, and even that, there's a, sort of an aphrodisiac connotation. Uh, sort of a, a sexual connotation there. Verse 14, his hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory. Whoa. All right. <laughs> Been a long time since I've seen. <laughs> like, are we sure this is common demand stuff? I, I don't. There's got to be an exception in here. Okay. Uh, his abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. Okay, but think about the symbolism here. Rods of gold, his hands, rods of gold. What is it? it? It could just mean simply that his dealings with her symbolized by his hands have been of the highest quality. The way in which he's dealt with her. Verse 15, his legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is full of sweetness and he is, and here's the key. Okay, if you're a wife, underline... It's time for you to get your pen out, okay? Verse 16, and he is wholly desirable. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Now, now think about this. Remember what he said of her back in chapter 4, verse 7. He said, you are altogether beautiful. But what does she say of him? That he is wholly desirable. The wording in chapter 4, verse 7, and I put it up here on the board, in the Hebrew, the word is kol, K-O-L. It's basically a word for all, okay? And that's why some translations, or the whole of a thing, or they say something, all together. Okay, you're all together beautiful. So it's kol yafe, which is a word for beautiful or fair, but in most contexts in, in the Old Testament, it's used to speak of physical appearance, now, the wording in chapter 5, verse 16, you find the same term, coal, so it's this sense of all, whole, all together. But then makmad is the word in the Hebrew, and it means a desire, a desirable thing, um, something considered to be precious and, and valuable. Uh, in fact, in the Greek translation, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it uses the word, and for any of you who've been in our counseling training, it uses the, the Greek word epithumia, which is, which is a word that is in the New Testament is used for strong craving, a longing. It even can, can be translated in the New Testament as lust, right? Or in, in some places, covetousness. So we're referring to that latent insecurity in men regarding their desirability. Three-fourths of men, these are just some, some different survey statistics, three-fourths of men feel insecure and are concerned about others' opinions of them and their abilities. Many men are afraid of others finding out that they actually cannot cut it. Some men live in fear that someday their boss is going to figure out that they shouldn't be doing this job, being released from their position at work, going through a downsize at the company, whatever. It does something to a man's soul. Men want to be wanted and respected. That's why so many men overwork. 
because they want the praise that comes with the accolades of work, right? So they throw all their energies in. It's it's like it's like it's as if work is an elixir <laughs> that says you're impo- you're important. You, you do stuff, okay? You you're the top salesman. You you made partner. You your investments are 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 are, are doing great. All these things, and of course there are dangers in that. But wives. The takeaway here is your husbands want to be wanted. And this is a really powerful driver in a man's life. Your husband doesn't always know that he is wholly desirable. Sometimes he feels like a failure. He, he, he wants to be wanted. And again, at the end of the day, only Jesus can fully satisfy that desire. Okay, But you can really help your husband. You can really help your husband. So just some application for the wives, as best as you can. Okay, and this is not about perfection, right? This is about striving. This is about working at this, okay? As best as you can, make your home a refuge, a place that your husband can't wait to go home to. Of course, when he shows up, it's his responsibility to be all in when he arrives, right? Because men, men are bad about this, right? They just bring all that all those thoughts, all those things, going, they just bring it right into the front door of the house, right? So men have to think about that. When they, they go home, it's not put your feet up and my family's here to serve me. It's your ministry just began, right? I mean, you go in the front door of your house after a hard day's work, your ministry's really just beginning, okay? You can't look at it like I'm turning, I've served these people all day long, now I'm going to turn that off and kick back. But wives, do your best to make your home a, a refuge, a safe place, not just another place where your husband feels like a failure. Okay? Another, make your home a place of respect. Right? Make, make it a place where you regularly communicate to your husband why you are proud of him and you're proud of the things that he does. And in, and in what ways? In other words, it gets, gets specific here, right? I mean, there's specificity on both sides. But I think wives have got to think about this, this particular thing and, and, and how to convey this. Make your home a place of attention, right? There are men that I've met who are jealous of their children. And as a result, they sometimes, sometimes act like them, okay? They see how much attention their wives, get, their wives give their kids. They come home and they get Essentially, in, at least from their perspective, they get the leftovers in terms of conversation and concern, uh, leftovers in terms of sexuality. And to wives, I would just say, try your best to enter his world, to take an interest in the things that he's interested in, to let him know at times that, that he has your full attention. And if he ever uses the word feel, <laughs> pay particular attention and be sure that you're all in. So when your husband says, I feel like... Say they don't always say that, okay? When he says, "I'm worried about this," or "I'm upset with this," or "I'm so overwhelmed with this," again, you gotta. Those are things you've really got to to clue into, and you need to tell yourself that this is a really important moment when that happens. And another, make your make your marriage a refuge of sexual desire. Right, the desire to be wanted is a powerful motivator. I thought this was an interesting, this, this, uh, this one survey, 90, for 97% of, of husbands, they said getting enough sexual intimacy by itself was not enough. They want to be wanted. Okay? 
And so a, a, a negative attitude on the part of, uh, part of a wife or the obligatory response on the part of, 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 the, of the wife, that makes things really, really hard. Okay? So s- sexual intimacy clearly is a form of communication in marriage that speaks forcefully to, to a husband. Again, marriage and sex are not permanent. Your ultimate satisfaction does not come from a sexual relationship. It has to come from Christ, and yet, as it relates to marriage, don't underestimate the power and the significance of the affirmation of sexuality. So affirmation in this text comes from, in these two, these two passages, comes from a husband saying to his wife, you are altogether beautiful, and affirmation comes from a wife saying to her husband, you are altogether beautiful desirable okay now does does a woman ever praise the physical appearance of her husband yes when we saw that right there is some of that um and then in fact she even back in chapter one there's actually the the, the, the term that he uses for beautiful for her she uses the same term of course we don't translate it when we're talking about men as beautiful it's used we use typically use the term handsome and that's the term that's used there. So, so it's not as if the wife never praises the physical uh, appearance, but that's not the more common thing. And on the other side, does a husband desire his wife? Well, yes, he does that. In fact, that's even stated in chapter 7, verse 10. So it's not as if these are, uh, it's all this and for her and it's all this for him. I'm just saying, I think when you look at it it's, and you just look at the text itself, you see that it's more heavily weighted on one side more than it is the other. Now, one, one, one fat, I guess, last thought here. Will our physical appearance, will our strength always be what it is now? <laughs> Not if you were with us in Ecclesiastes. Okay, for those of you who were actually with us in that series, I'll remind you of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The teeth were not all white and equal and present. This is Solomon at the end of his life. Ecclesiastes 12.1, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are darkened and clouds return after the rain. All this symbolism. In the day that the watchmen of the house tremble and the mighty men stoop, the grinding ones, remember those? Those are the teeth. The grinding ones stand idle because they are few. And those who look through windows grow dim, and the doors on the street are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low. And one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, and the caper berry is ineffective. Remember, that was a, that was a reference to, to sexuality. Uh, for man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. Remember God, remember the Lord before the silver cord is broken and the golden bowl is crushed. The pitcher by the well is shattered and the wheel at the cistern is crushed. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Right? So are, are these things, is, is physical appearance going to change? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is strength, those types of things, are they going to go away? Yes. But I would say, 
I've got my grandmother here this morning. Okay, so we hadn't met Dorothy, as they say. Mama Dot, that's what we called her. Okay. Her both sets of my grandparents, my father's side, mother's side, sixty-four years of marriage. Okay, three of the four of them are have passed away. But here's what I can say, right? Mama Dot, okay, her husband of sixty-four years, Hubert Lanier Hawkins. Okay. For Hubert Lanier Hawkins, Dorothy was his woman. Did things change over time? Yeah, some things change over time, but that didn't change. And for her, Hubert Lanier Hawkins was her man, right? And their focus and their attention was on one another, even though the physicality, it it, it does change, right? The strength changes. Sexuality, we go through changes and all that. But the attitude of the heart, you are wholly desirable, you are altogether beautiful, okay? They could have said that up until their last days, right? That's what we're talking about. So the thing that I want you to think about and consider is what are the ways in which you should affirm your spouse and how can you grow in your affirmation of one another? You probably have some time this week with the break, Thanksgiving, Take some time and ask each other, how do I make you feel? How can I serve you better? How can I do a better job at making you feel more secure and more wanted? Okay, that's your assignment. Take some time this week. You're going to probably have a little bit extra to have those kinds of conversations, ask those kinds of questions, make that kind of application. Okay, help one another. If you're married, you work on this together. Help one another. You've got to figure this out. Okay, you've got to figure these things out. Marriage is a gift, but it should be filled with affirmation, filled with it. And you see it in this book before they're ever married. Okay, in that time of of just meeting one another and getting to know one another and the engagement and all that goes along with that. There's this growing desire for one another. But then when you get on the other side of chapter 4 and chapter 5, really the after the marriage, what you find there is there's even more affirmation. <laughs> it's not like affirmation was all back here, and then now we're married, and we don't need to do that anymore. Actually, what you see is affirmation on the front side, and then after the wedding, it continues and gets stronger. And if you want to have a strong marriage, I'm just telling you, this is key. This is an absolute essential ingredient to a strong and godly marriage. Your marriage has got to be filled with affirmation of those kinds. Okay? So think about that. Think about the application of that. Uh, Again, I'll have someone step in next Sunday, and then when we come back, I really want to talk about the, the, mar- the, the wedding itself, kind of give you some background about what were weddings like in the ancient Near East, a little different than we would do things. And then what is marriage? I mean, what, what is it? Just almost can, can we put a definition on what it is based upon what Scripture teaches us? Um, and how does the physical component play into that? And what, what is this whole thing about public vows? And I mean, how do, how do, why do we do marriage the way that we do it? In other words, why do we, why is there this, how did we ever get to this sort of expectation that if two people are going to get married, these are the things that are supposed to happen, right? And they're supposed to happen this way, and they're supposed to happen in this order. And I'm saying there's a reason why, folks, that 
we do it the way that we do it. And, and some things have changed over time, but not many. And so we're just going to kind of put that together, pull that apart, think, think some about that. Uh, and we'll keep plodding along until we get to Christmas. Okay? All right, folks, thanks for your time.